new beginning. Welcome to the Grief Dreams podcast. My name is Sean Ram alongside, as always, Dr. Joshua Black. It's just a beautiful day. The podcast, uh, we love doing it. And uh, again, we love talking to unique and different types of people. And like all of us are. Wanted to, again, give a shout out to all you listeners out there. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And uh, all over the world, all over uh, Canada, all over the United States and globally. And we really appreciate just you taking the time out to spend your day or spend some time with us. So on today's podcast, we have with us Matthew Bocci. And at the age of nine, Matthew's father died in 2001 on 9-11 in the World Trade Center. He began an obsessive quest to find out exactly how his father died. Now 28, now 28 and sober, he teaches a clear and intricate lesson. No matter how far you fall, you can always rise again. No matter how far you stray, you can always find your home. And no matter how wide you sway, you can always pick up pieces and stand tall. His new book, Sway, um, is a unique story full of heartbreak and despair Grief and uncertainty, but most importantly, happiness. Matthew, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. So, I said, like, this is when I read about this and and your bio, as I said, it's just like it it broke my heart. And one of the reasons is because you were a kid, you know, and, and losing your father. I lost my father when I was older. So, I had a little bit more coping skills, maybe, than, you know, a child would. So, I'm really, you know, if you want to, first start start talking about your relationship with your dad you know as a child and then how do you even how do you even start processing what happened yeah well i i'm the oldest of four boys and you know my relationship with my dad was in a way a little bit different than theirs you know i was not much older than them but older enough where it affected me a little bit differently before he died uh, i was very close to my father you know even as a little kid you know i i look forward to him coming home every day from work. And, you know, we have a lot of family videos and stuff um, that most of the time my dad was behind the camera, but then there was times that my mom took it too. And, and seeing the connection I have with my dad was, um, was, was beautiful, but at the same time, heartbreaking too, you know, just to know, uh, to look back now older and see the, uh, the connection I have with him and just the fact that um, I love them so much. And, and so, um, you know, dealing with his loss, well, you know, it was one of the hardest things I've, I've ever had to do. It was certainly difficult for me to process what exactly happened. And, and as a nine-year-old, even as like adults who were witnessing 9-11 and, and what was unfolding, it was a lot for people to to process. So for a nine-year-old kid to uh, to watch footage of you know the planes hitting the towers and people jumping and the plane and the buildings collapsing it almost seemed too surreal to be uh, a reality. And I think I kind of held on to that belief that, you know, that this was just, there was just no way that this could happen. You know, quickly those, those dreams and, and hopes were, were diminished and, and squashed. But uh, I, I really found it difficult to a understand, you know, that my dad died. Right. And, and B understand that it, it, what was more difficult for me to understand was the fact that there could have been, multiple ways that he could have died. And that was what was so difficult because, you know, when people, you know, you lose a parent um, in a car accident or, you know, with an illness, you know, you you have a cut and dry answer. And with 9-11, particularly, 
there were so many people who weren't identified that, you know, remains weren't found. We were grateful that that was the case for us, that we did find something. But even so, there were still so many unknown factors. You know, he wasn't in one of the planes. So, you know, he could have died from asphyxiation. He could have died from the building collapsing. He could have died from, uh, from jumping. And so, um, there was just, that was what was so difficult and hard for me to wrap my head around was, was the fact that I didn't know what happened to him. And that was what I struggled with. And how did like people try to like support you at that time? Were you to be able to talk to anyone? Did they just like avoid your grief? Cause you know, like can, sometimes children's grief is disenfranchised and when other people are grieving, it tends to be overlooked a little bit more too. Were you able to get support from anyone around you? I did. Yeah. And there was certainly a dichotomy between family members who understood that this was something I needed to process and, you know, to answer the questions I was asking, maybe it was important for me to, to, to understand. And then there was also family members who felt that it wasn't going to prove to be anything useful for me. You know, it was just something that um, I had to accept. And also I had to accept the fact that maybe I wouldn't find out the answers to the questions I was asking. So you know, my mom was was pretty open in the beginning, and I and I've sort of learned throughout time that other moms, you know, of, of friends of mine who lost their dads in nine eleven, they were either more open or more closed off. I think my mom was right in the middle of that, and she would answer these questions that I asked. Uh, and it got to a point though for her where she started to realize that it was it was getting deeper and deeper the questions were becoming a little bit more focused and uh, and direct. And they were also really, really detailed and, and almost graphic at times. So that's when I started to uh, wonder perhaps that maybe my dad did jump from the towers and she started to see the family computer, uh, on the history on the family computer. And, and it was all stuff that I was searching. And so when she started to see that stuff, she didn't click on any of the, th- the things that I searched, but she realized that this was something that was that I was really struggling with and I couldn't really process it. And that's when she started to kind of put her hands up and say, listen, you gotta, you can't be doing this to yourself. You're just gonna, you're just gonna go down a deeper and deeper hole that maybe you won't be able to come out of. And and it's just, you're going to see something that you can unsee and it's going to really affect you. And and that was certainly true in in, in a, a variety of ways. But, you know, fortunately I had family members who did um, continue to answer these questions uh, one of which who manipulated me and, and exposed my vulnerabilities, but most of them started to realize that, you know, engaging in those conversations was just proving more harm than good. Wow. Yeah. I, and I can see, I can see different sides to that, right? Like your mom is also grieving and ha- probably has a lot on her plate and uh, is trying to be protective of you and has good intentions and saying, okay, here's this nine, 10 year old who's I'm looking at some stuff, dealing with some stuff that's uh, usually not what a nine and 10 year old kind of deals with. And I also understand the, the need to know, you know, that's not for myself. I myself haven't dealt with that situation where I've been, you know, haven't known the the circumstances surrounding loved ones that have passed away. But uh, we have talked to people who have explained that to us that, the need to know or even the need to see the body is uh, for a lot of people, there is a drive there. And I think that explains in a lot of situations why we have 
funerals and open caskets. And again, there are people who don't want to go there either. So there's, there's people are different and everybody's different, but um, I do understand the need aspect as well of needing to know. And, and my mom actually was one of those people who, uh, you know, and this is another thing, right, right? This is where it was, it was a, a rare situation that there was enough of a person found that, uh, that could be viewed. And that was our case. But my mom didn't ask to see what was in the bag, in the black bag. She asked to see or asked to feel. And the woman who was at the funeral home actually told her, Michelle, like my mom's name is Ship Michelle, you don't want, you don't want to do it. You, you really don't want to do it. And, um, and she, so she, she wouldn't let her and she, and, and, you know, my mom probably could have like argued and, and pushed for it, but you know, I think it was, she's some, that's something that she's kind of, uh, she's uh, a little maybe grateful for now, you know, that she didn't do that because it probably would have tarnished her image of my dad. And then on the other side of that, you know, I know families who, even if they didn't find much, like they actually did want to see, and they did see the remains. And I can, and like you said, I can understand both sides of that spectrum. If I was a little bit older at that time, I probably would have wanted to, to feel it or, or see it. And I just think it's just such a hard thing to grasp, you know, loss in general. Just I, I had to I had to be at my grandmother's house when my grandfather passed away. And that was a gift in and of itself. You know, I was about three or four years sober, three years sober. And I got that call to, to, to go help my grandma before the cops got there and stuff and, and, and the ambulance and everything. And then, you know, seeing him there versus seeing him in the in the funeral home at the wake and stuff, you know, the difference. And, um, and I thought that it would kind of mess with my head a little bit and, and maybe prevent me from, you know, remember him in a good way. But, you know, it, it gave me a, a, an interesting type of closure that I, that I never thought I would have. And so I don't have that type of feeling that I thought I would have regarding his death and seeing him in that way. When you were searching, did you, ever end up finding out how your father died or is that still sort of a mystery that sits in the mind i did i did you know what happened was uh when i was about 10 years old or so i i i, I always heard nine and a half years old to 10 right in, in the, all those early months after i always heard rumblings that you know he was in the staircase when the building collapsed and that his death was quick and that he was alive one moment and gone the next and as a younger kid, even as a younger kid, I, I kind of thought, oh, this is just like, uh, you know, they want, they're just saying this fairy tale ending, you know, so that like, not that I wouldn't want to know more, but just like, it just seems so convenient, I guess. And so the, the, you know, I was told by uh, an uncle, he was an uncle through marriage, uh, that my father jumped and that led to me being sexually abused by him. And so my quest of trying to find him in one of those pictures or videos of people jumping was really, really big. You know, it was, it was in, ignited and that was something that was hard for me to deal with. And I was really determined to find him in one of those pictures. Then years later, I finally had a conversation with my mom about it where she told me, you know, more details um, because I had thought I was under the impression that they had found the majority of him intact at once. And that was not the case, but she told me more details of things and reasons why she could, they, you know, believe that, that he was in that staircase. And, um, you know, so now do I believe that? Yes, I do. Of course, there's part of me that always wants to know more, you know, but it's something I can't, I, I won't find out. What, what led your, your uncle to say that? I think he was just, you know, he's a sick individual predator and, you know, he'd been trying to groom me and, and, you know, for a couple of years prior, 
ironically, as I got older, you would think I'd become a little bit more weary of it or smarter regarding it. But uh, I was just a really vulnerable kid. And so when the other opportunities weren't working or his other attempts weren't working and he realized how deeply affected I was by my dad's death for starters, but also more particularly trying to solve his death and figure out what happened. He just, you know, fed into what I was asking, the questions I was asking. And he knew, he knew if he told me certain answers, you know, even though they were false, that those responses would, would make me even more vulnerable and, and, and like, more susceptible to uh to believe him for things you know wow i am uh i'm really like taken back and i don't know what kind of what to even say to for you to go through that experience and to have someone you know manipulate you to get what they need through and through your grief rather than helping you i can't imagine what that does like i just you know like it, it's hard it's really heartbreaking for me to to sit with the truth of that and that that even occurs yeah i don't, I don't know if, uh where to yeah. go i really don't know where to go from here yeah the well the trust you know someone you're supposed to trust and uh they're using this this information they you know they know you enough to know how to manipulate you to get what they need and it's that it's heartbreaking for you know someone your age because it's not again obviously it's not your fault you're you're a child at that point and it's 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 very uh it's 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 a tough one obviously you went you lived through it talk about what that those feelings around those situation was happening and when he was you know going through that and manipulating you and how you eventually um recovered and healed from that or what what happened in the next stage of your life post that well, you know, so like to kind of go off of, of Joshua's thoughts, like instead of it being really aware for me, like to, to really <clears throat> to really process that, like, you know, the abuse and all that stuff at that, at that time, I was more fixated on figuring out like like basically what, what was going on at that time was it had been about four years of, of searching and basically looking at the same videos and pictures over and over and over again and not seeing anything new or not developing any new leads, so to speak. You know, I like look, I viewed myself as like almost like a detective, you know, I was, I was looking through data and, and pictures and trying to like figure out like, you know, direction wise and, and, you know, like on a map, like where my dad's office was located, which side of the building he would have been going out of, or like, you know, hanging out of the windows, like which direction there were so many different uh, vantage points. So instead of the abuse, like being like, wow, like, you know, my life just turned upside down right then and there, which it certainly did. I was then like, I, I, I had the answers to the questions that everyone was basically telling me no to, you know, he was saying your dad jumped. So now I was like, okay, now I know that's the truth. And it's not just like something that I'm kind of thinking could be true. It's, it's, it's a factual it, it's a factual answer. Like this is the answer. So then instead of it like preventing me from, you know, kind of giving up on that search, it just, like I said, sort of like reignited that flame. And, and it was like a catalyst for me to keep going forward with it. You know, as the years went on, I really struggled with it more and more. And some of the stuff that I, 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 I viewed, I had a lot of nightmares because of some of that stuff. And I can, I can go into that too. But, uh, you know, I started, you know, because of the nightmares and, just I, I was I had a lot of anxiety, 
uh, I started using drugs and, and alcohol as, as a way to cope. Um, and, you know, it started off pretty recreational. I was just drinking and smoking pot on the weekends. But as I got older and I went to college, I, I gravitated towards uh, harder drugs and, and pills, opiates, cocaine. And so, um, you know, I, I really use drugs, especially drugs, but drugs and alcohol as a way to forget all the things that I had seen. And, and also just to like try to shut my mind off because, you know, even in my dreams and my sleep, I was still affected by all the things that I witnessed and all the things that I went through too. Yeah, I think it'd be good to talk about the dreams because it was a, you know, I wouldn't doubt it'd be a cause of increased suffering and then a reason why to go towards sort of um, alcohol and drugs, uh, hopefully maybe even stop those in a way. So yeah, what kind of dreams were you having? They were all 9-11, in the beginning, they were all 9-11 related. And there was pretty much three recurring ones. The first one was like, basically, I'm in the North Tower on on the 105th floor with my dad. And I'm just witnessing all the commotion around me and and just like, you know, the, the people going crazy in this and there's smoke and, and my dad and I, both jump out the window together. Another dream, I'm viewing my dad jump and I can't do anything to help him. And then in another dream, I'm basically doing that myself. And so I would pretty much wake up each time before I would hit the ground. And and so um, that I know was probably pretty easily, you know, correlated with what I was looking at um, on, on a daily basis. And like, literally, like I said, like I was looking at just like every single thing you could imagine, but I was looking at what views from inside the World Trade Center. I mean, I had been there many times, but views inside the World Trade Center and what they looked like, like what it looked like looking down. And so like, I think subconsciously, a lot of this stuff was, um, was because of what I was looking at. And then as, uh, as time got older or time went on and I got older, I and, you know, it had been years since the abuse had happened. But then I started having dreams of uh, of abuse from that individual that didn't happen. It, it was uh, it was more graphic. It was more uh, detailed. And um, I'd wake up in a panic, you know, and, and then and uh, and like I, I wouldn't be able to to be able to stop it. And, uh, you know, and, and another dream actually I had was. Um, I would uh, I'd be on the the lot in the, in the lobby, because I had, I had seen this documentary. It was these two French, French individuals, these brothers who were following these firefighters and they were filming a documentary for these firefighters. And so they actually were the ones who have the only footage of the North tower, the plane hitting the North tower. But as they're in the lobby of the North tower, what you hear over and over and over again is the sound of people jumping and hitting the ground. And it's so, so loud. And that's another one of the dreams I would have is like, I'm like basically looking up and I'm seeing, and I'm watching all of this, but I can't do anything obviously to help these people. So a lot of it, you know, I think the, the brain and the mind is so powerful and it had to do with what I was engrossing myself with, you know, just things that I was constantly viewing um, that it was like, I could like play out these documentaries. I could play out these videos and like, know like the movements of these people as they're coming to the ground. Like I had, this stuff was like, ingrained in my mind. On a side note, uh, something that I talked about in my book too, is the fact that my dad, you know, I don't consider it a dream. Um, I consider it more of like a, a ghost or, or, or some sort of afterlife presence. But my dad had an experience that led him to basically be panicky and realize that um, 
he wasn't happy in his job and that he wanted to find a new passion. And I think he sort of like felt like death was like looming in the corner, which is so weird to think about. So I, I certainly believe in, in, in these types of, you know, experiences and these like signs and uh, messages too from the afterlife, you know? Yeah. And many people do. Right. And that's sort of the, the beauty of the topic is, you know, it's, it's based on the dreamer's perspective on how they view it. And we just hope people view it in a way that's conducive to helping them through their grief and uh, not hindering them from moving forward in their loss. And so I just want to talk about some of those, those dreams because it's, it's very interesting. And, you know, I know just doing the research with grief dreams, those like when it comes to trauma, you're going to have dreams of re- reenactment of the death, but it seems like yours is said like you weren't there so you didn't actually see it. So right. the mind was giving you what you were trying to seek, which was an understanding of what happened. And so it was playing out a lot of what you wanted to find out, which is interesting. And, you know, like, as you said, like, there are all different perspectives on the event. So it'd be like you, your dad jumping, you seeing people jump, like what that looked like, sounded like, and what I look at it when it comes to like the, these, these trauma dreams is the mind is trying to process not only the experience, but also trying to work your way through your own grief. Cause you said like, this wasn't actually how he died. So it was based on sort of the lies people told uh, and like different theories that it might've happened. And so it was just giving you something as you move forward. So I'm not sure when they started, if it was only after the lie was told or if it was before, but that could really give an understanding of, why they were occurring yeah it was after it was after the lie i was told interesting yeah so yeah it definitely sort of makes more sense into the mind trying to sort of digest that truth that was actually a lie which would make it even more difficult right right wow and then like jumping together and like what that would it's almost like when you're jumping out it's like the it's like i trying to it's like the mind trying to understand what the person was going through during that event and that's how I see it. It's like, because the way you're really heavily focused on it, it wasn't that, okay, now I know how he died. I'm going to move forward. It's like, no, like now, what did he think? What did it sound like? Where we already land, like all this sort of stuff would then move forward because it wasn't just about the answer. The mind was just clinging to something and it wasn't going to give it up after like an answer was, you know, quote unquote found. So yeah, you can really see the mind going through all the stuff that you're probably going through in waking life and ruminating on and all the the intrusive rumination that was occurring. So yeah, it's just you see the trauma and then you, you see that aspect of it through your dreams, um, which is which is sad because that in itself could really hinder your your healing in the meat, like as you move forward. Um, and then you had these other trauma dreams with with your uncle and you know, one of the things with, you know, trauma dreams is like the actual event, but sometimes it's the mind will try to process the trauma with an exaggerated version or a different version of what happened at, just as a way to try to figure this out, trying to problem solve in a way. And, you know, it seems like that was going on there. So you had like this double trauma occurring and how difficult that is for anyone, let alone a child who's still developing uh, they're coping and you know children dealing with trauma is actually you know has been just shown in research to be the hardest kind of trauma for people to work through because they don't have the coping skills necessary so it makes sense why you then turn to drugs right like this is an easy understanding and i hope people that uh, look at those or will now when they look at someone that is abusing medication or alcohol 
that there's some deep sorrow and there's some deep pain and there's a lot of trauma that pe- that goes unacknowledged in people especially males very difficult time you know opening up to what happened and so you know i'm really grateful for you just to be able to open up and share these truths because it can really change the perspective of how people treat others uh, moving forward in all circumstances and the issues on on how to help people going through that so for you how did you have any kind of support like what helped you get over or get through the addiction to then work through their your your grief so in 2013 that's when uh my mom was pretty aware that i was addicted to drugs i went to my first detox facility and uh when i was in there i got a call that my grandfather my dad's dad passed away and when i got that call i was like okay like i'm not gonna stay sober and i didn't stay sober i got out and pretty much immediately got high so the support was there i went to another detox pretty quickly thereafter and then I kind of just skated by, you know, I, I was still, in, I was in college and I was at a good college and I was somehow miraculously passing classes and doing okay. And uh, so on the outside, I put on this facade that things were all right. I got through college and uh, I got a job in New York City in finance and like, once again, like continuing this, um, this, this image that things were all right with me, even though I was suffering immensely inside. But Eventually, uh, you know, I had legal trouble that happened right when I got out of school and, you know, pretty much put my career at risk. And then uh, I still didn't make any, I still didn't ha- take any action with it. It took me having my own a spiritual experience that prompted me to want to get sober. And I pretty much admitted to my mom, like, listen, all these things that you're either accusing me or, you know, suspicious that I'm lying about, those are all, you're right. I am doing all that. And, um, you know, things like fraud that I had, you know, committed and stuff like that. I went to the, my, I went to that facility and uh, then I went to another facility and a sober house. And then I, I, main, I maintained my sobriety since. And, and the, and the support was there. You know, my mom supported me. She wanted me to get better. She didn't want me to die, obviously, which is what she feared if I continued down that road. And when I was about six, seven months sober, you know, I was working, this, I'm, I still work the steps, but I was working the steps for the first time. And I came forward about the abuse for pretty much the first time ever. I think I actually spoke about it one time when I was under the influence, but it was like an in passing type of deal and nothing that the person I told took really seriously or, or something that like was going to be done, I guess. So, but I came forward about it and then uh, I ended up telling my mom, I told my uncle, my, my dad's brother, who I'm very close with, and then I proceeded to take legal action. You know, that other uncle went, went to prison for about four years. He had a seven year sentence. And, you know, that's a whole nother topic of discussion. Uh, he was facing a lot, a lot more than that. But, um, you know, getting through, getting to the point of, of surrender was what got me sober, you know, was, was what prompted me to, to admit, to admit to myself that I had a problem. I knew I had that problem, but it was like, do I want to do something about it and actually get help and live my life? Because I was really dealing with a lot of, you know, depression and and uh, suicidal ideation, and and I tried k- killing myself, but it wasn't really strong attempt at doing it. It was just like I'm gonna try to overdose intentionally, and like it didn't work. And so I was really suffering, but I had to get to that point of of really wanting to change my life. I couldn't do it because everyone else wanted me to do it, which is what happened in the past. So when I got to that point, that's when I started to really move forward with my life and and beat my addiction. And it's one day at a time, but you know, I've been sober sober now for over five years and 
almost at like five and a half years. And so, um, you know, it's, it's not a daily struggle anymore, but it's something that I have to maintain every day. But the support was there and the support was also there when I came forward about the abuse. And, and, and so really in, in reality, in, in sobriety, I've had the gift of sobriety for, for starters, but I've also had the ability to work through my traumas and my grief and in a healthy way. Even with my dad's death, even with knowing that he didn't jump, I still watched videos of that stuff. I still watched other videos of 9-11 and, and the footage of it. And, and I think in a lot of ways, it was me trying to maybe on a philosophical level, like understand that day and, and understand like my dad's choices, my dad's potential choices that day and, and what that made him as a, as a man, like what that, what that said about him. And I also sort of witnessed or, or, or viewed myself in some of these scenarios and, and thought like how I would deal with it. But now in terms of that, I, I, I've overcome that too. You know, I don't, I don't watch that stuff anymore. Um, you know, I've had a couple, I, I don't want to call it a slip, but I've had a couple moments where I've, I've, I've watched it and brings back the feelings of, of, of like almost like a sickness inside of me. Like it makes me feel horrible, like physically like nauseous and sick. Whereas like that was what like what the initial feeling was when watching that stuff. And then as time went on, my body like solidified and like hardened inside. And like, I didn't have any emotion with watching it. I didn't get sick. I didn't, you know, vomit or anything like I used to. And now it's like sort of like a beautiful thing to almost be like reincarnated in, in a sense and like not have that effect that it used to give me or, or the, the effect it would produce. So now like I don't watch that stuff. And now it's, I'm working through my trauma and, and trying to, do it in a healthy way and, and cope with it in a healthy way and, and understand and try to understand why these things happened and, and that they don't, they don't have to define me as a person either. That's amazing. And it's amazing. You're, you found a, a way to surrender. And I think you had a really important topic that you can't force someone into recovery. There are these moments where you said that yours was a spiritual spirit experience. There's these moments where people have to really fight for that change and to really have a, a new direction of where they where they want to go. And so I'm really curious about your experience, your spiritual experience that really helped you surrender. Sure. So when my dad passed away, when it was pretty apparent that he, you know, wasn't coming home because, you know, my mom did hold on to this belief that maybe he got out of the tower or maybe he wasn't in the tower, but like she knew he was there because he called and, and he said goodbye, but she was like, maybe there's just, maybe there's the chance. Maybe there's the chance. Like she, she like was like feeding into all these, uh, you know, possibilities that weren't even that she knew weren't true, but that's just part of her own grief too, you know? And, and I think it was a lot for her to process and for everyone to process. But so pretty soon thereafter, someone told my mom to look for the signs from my dad. And I think it was like the night after nine 11 or two nights after she was in her room and, and upset and, um, and a fly landed on her nightstand and, Pretty, pretty much immediately, she took that to be a sign that my dad was in heaven, that he was safe, and that he wasn't coming home. And that fly ended up staying in our house throughout the winter. Uh, for like, it was like six months it was in the house. And so like, as the years went on, like we, we and it's, uh, it's a particular fly, but it's just one of those things like when, you see it, when we see it, we know it. It's not like a gnat. It's not like a hornet. You know, it's, it's, it's a very particular fly. And it just sounds so interesting, you know, when you talk about that and people believe in signs, you know, but other people don't. But, you know, to say like a fly is like your dad, it's like funny because like 
people who knew my dad will be like, that is exactly what he would want to do. Like to just like <laughs> be in everyone's face. Like he, he would want to be like, be like that. So anyway, throughout the years, you know, like that fly was around, like my mom got remarried and she got, she got married um, outside and there was like uh, these white pillars that were, you know, surrounding or whatever. And one, and my, my aunt actually had witnessed a fly on that pillar. And like symbolically, like when my mom kissed my stepdad to be married, like that fly flew away. And like, we view that as my dad's blessing. Like there was a lot of powerful moments and it would, and that fly would come around in, in bad times and good times, you know, and times for me, especially it would be there. It, I, I noticed it a lot. So like I said before, I, you know, I got into some legal trouble and I was facing jail time and, um, and I had failed the drug test, which I was under the impression was a, was going to be a mouth swab test. And so, uh, I had used this detox mouthwash that gives you clean saliva for a limited period of time. And at the last minute I was told to go, you know, pee in a cup and I didn't bring the fake urine that I had also purchased. So, you know, everything was crashing at once. And, uh, I was given one last shot. I was like, they were like, you know, you can come back in a month and if you're clean, we'll drop the charges. But if not, you're going to go to jail. And I didn't know what to do. And I was at a, at a, you know, fork in the road and, and didn't know what, what I should do. And, uh, I was pacing around the house by myself. It was a summer day in July, July 22nd. And I literally didn't know what to do. I was talking to people who I was doing, you know, these drugs with or, or also like affiliated dealers too. And they were like, oh, just go back in a month, like bring the fake urine with you just in case and you'll be fine. Like the guy, when I was in the bathroom, like didn't even look at me peeing, you know, which they're supposed to look at it through like this like angled mirror to make sure you don't have anything that's like, you know, going to contaminate the, the test or, or fake it. He didn't look at me. So I was playing out that scenario. Like, do I do this? Do I, you know, do I go back in a month? And the other side of me was like, I'm so sick and tired of living this life. Like this, this constant lie and just, you know, every single day, like having to like source drugs and like, it was just like getting so tiring. I had gone outside to uh, smoke a joint. And um, when I, for whatever reason, like I walked out into my backyard and like, just was, I was just like hit with like emotion because I looked up in the sky and it was like a crystal, crystal clear blue sky day, just like on the morning of 9-11. Even though it was like the summer, it just had that same type of feel. There was like literally not a cloud in the sky. And I broke down crying, which for me was very rare in, in active addiction. You know, I didn't, I bottled my emotions. I was pretty much constantly numb physically and emotionally. And for whatever reason, I just broke down and, and I said, dad, please give me a sign. I need help. And within an instant, this that same fly lands on the railing that I was leaning against. And, um, and it just sat there and it moved around in a circle and would stop and look at me and move around again in a circle and stop and look at me. And I was like blown away by it, you know, and I pulled out my phone and I recorded it because I was like, I, I want to like hold on to this moment. Finally, it flies away after about 10 minutes or so. And, um, I was like, you know what? I'm done with this. I'm done with all this shit. And, um, I went inside and I called up a detox on my own, you know, and I like, no one was at my house. They were actually down the shore. And, um, and I said, I'm, I, I called and I said, listen, I need a bed today. And they were like, we can't get you in today. We can get you in in two days. I said, okay, that's fine. I'll take it. Let me, let me book that bed. And they said, okay, we, you're, you know, you're all set. And, uh, I got off the phone, sent this long message to my mom, basically saying, like I said before, like all these things that I had been lying about, um, you know, this is what's, this is what I'm dealing with. And like, you know, I said, I'm, I'm going to go to, I'm going to detox on Friday. And, and in the past, like, you know, I'd always manipulated my way out of going to rehab 
it was like, okay, I'll go to a detox, get like a little like oil change and clean up and I'll be all right. And it never worked. But, um, you know, something was different inside of me, you know, something had clicked in my mind and I was like, I, I, I knew I didn't want to live that life anymore. And I went to detox. And then when the time came to go to rehab, I, I, I went to rehab. And then 30 days later after that, I once again was faced with an opportunity to of, of really of growth. And um, what had happened was I was planning on coming home, going back to work, going into therapy and trying to you know face and deal with my demons. And my mom agreed to it. And then at the last minute, the next day, uh, she was at the rehab for this family program. And she says, I really want you to go to the sober house in New Hampshire. I, I, I'm worried if you come home, you're going to relapse. And we were outside sitting in this gazebo after I was like screaming at her, basically saying like, I'm not going like I was, I was gaslighting her. I was like, I'm not going like, you know, why do you, you don't want me to come home? Like all this stuff. And, um, and she was like crying and stuff. And then all of a sudden I just said, you know what? I'll go. I didn't have my phone with me cause I was in the rehab, but Two days later, you know, my mom was leaving that day and she's crying hysterically, basically like shooing her away. I'm like, go, go. Like, it's fine. Like I said, I would go like, let's, let's drop it. It's not a big deal. Like you don't have to be so emotional. And when I got my phone back two days later, I turned it on and, and it, and, it, and I had a text from her and it said like, when we were sitting in that gazebo fly was behind you on the railing and it flew away. And then you said you would go to the sober house. So like there was all these signs throughout my life and leading into me getting sober and then maintaining my sobriety. And, and so, you know, I, I'm a part of AA and like, you know, they say you have to get a higher power. And, and for me, I, I pretty much instinctively chose my dad as my higher power and all because of those experiences that I had. That's uh that's a beautiful, it's beautiful to see your journey. It's beautiful to see you overcoming this using spirituality and like, how does it feel to, how does it feel to when when you started getting clean and started healing yourself to kind of drop the lies drop the the baggage that you had on you to to you know come clean to your mom like completely uh to to you know at the end of the day to really start to really love yourself uh in a new way how did all that feel like uh for you well it was uh you know it was it was free you know and and um to put it to put it you know bluntly it was it was very freeing and you know, getting over the physical dependency that I had with drugs, certain drugs, I don't want to say it was the easy part, but it was one of the easier parts in hindsight, because once I got like, once I was like, my body was rid of all that stuff. And I was like living my life and like waking up, not in withdrawal and like waking up as a normal person, I guess I, that, that was like, that was, that was amazing. But then it was like dealing with like the real stuff, the emotional stuff, um, the mental stuff and the spiritual stuff too. And, and like, and, and coping with the things that I went through that were in, that were kept internally um, and things that I had to let out in order to really be able to grow as a person. And so when I started coming forward about all that stuff, especially the abuse, but then making amends for like the, you know, things I did wrong, it was like basically just becoming a new person because I lived a life. So it was so filled with so many lies that I started to believe the lies and, um, and then I couldn't keep up with them anymore either. And then to be able to wake up every day, live my life somewhat honorably and not have to keep up with so many different aspects of, of lies that like I was losing track of, you know, just to be able to, to be a person again and, and to be someone who's respected and, and loved and trusted. You know, once I started having those types of things happen to me, that's something that I chased. And I was like, I, I, I just want to keep getting better. 
And like, you know, as time has gone on, my relationships with my mom and my brothers, they've all fostered and grown in different ways and, and, and in beautiful ways. But it's all because of the fact that I stayed sober. You know, if, if I didn't hold on to that and like, and realize that it's changed my life for the good, it's very easy for me to, to, to want to go back to that, that old life. It, I would just be doing it a service to myself and to others too, because, you know, my story, um, I think I can really help people and inspire people because, you know, look, like, like, like Josh was saying before, like men don't, it's very hard for men to talk about abuse and, and things that they've gone through and trauma. And I think that I helped a lot of my close friends who have gone through certain things similar to mine, get through their own stuff and, and realize that it, it's okay. And, and it's, there's nothing to be ashamed of. And I'm trying to destigmatize some of these topics, you know, and, um, and, and to show that, you know, to be courageous and, and to be brave and, expose yourself and, and, and show your vulnerabilities and what you've gone through, that, that doesn't make you less of a man. That makes you a stronger person. And so that's what I'm trying to do now. Yeah, that's a, that's, oh man, that's beautiful to hear. It, it really is. And that's something that we uh, try to do in our lives. Look, we're, we're humans uh, and we need to grow as men and we need to heal. And that means also being able to talk about, you know, vulnerabilities and weakness. And it's, sometimes it's difficult to talk about weaknesses uh, because we've been taught as a culture in general and in society to uh, a man is this or a man is that uh, a man doesn't cry. And and, and when I, when you said you, you had cried, I thought, man, that's so beautiful. Like to, to, cause I know what that's like to, to find, to have a release like that, to have a moment when you can show that vulnerability on the outside, but there's such a beautiful strength in that as well. And it's even it's even more amazing that you can be there as a friend and have those conversations with other men and being able to support them. And I think that's another huge, huge thing as well, because it's it's difficult if you're suffering, you're going through stuff to be able to support other people. So that's a that's a beautiful, you know, for you, you know, a mark in your life where you could say, look how far I've come. I'm able to now support those people around me who have been going through some stuff. Yeah. And it's, and it's also just, you know, you, I, I think it's like when, when you view yourself and, and view your own story, it's like, it's so easy to be like, at least this is how I feel. My story is not compelling enough or like, you know, people aren't going to be like, I don't say inspired, but people aren't going to, aren't going to gain anything from it, you know? And then as I start like talking about the things that I went through and really just sort of acknowledging the fact that, um, that I don't view them as, bad things that happened to me as I used to do. I used to pity myself. Right. And, and now it's like, I view them as they were like tests of, of strength and, um, and growth. And I was able to, to overcome them. So now my purpose I feel in this life is to help people do the same and help people to face their own demons, face their own traumas and other experiences that they may have gone through that maybe, maybe not so much, externally bogging them down, but maybe subconsciously and internally affecting them and, and understanding that there can be so much personal growth and development that can happen from basically facing those things head on. And that's what I think is important um, in order to to grow as people. And that's just not like people in sobriety, like people who are sober and like, it's, it's for everyone, you know, like not every single person goes through, you know, drug addiction or alcoholism and deals with that. And not every person deals with a, a really tragic and sensationalized loss of a parent or sexual abuse either. But people go through things and it could be on a, on a bigger scale or smaller scale, but they go through things that affect them and make them question and doubt themselves. And 
I think it's important that we all sort of accept what we go through as, as our, as part of our story, but it doesn't have to define us in our story. If that makes any sense. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. And you're just finding the control back, getting the control back into your life and try and determine who you want to be as you move forward, given the circumstances that have been a part of your life. And one of the things that I really I hear from you about your your story is to accept your humanity. I think that's one of the issues many people face is to accept your emotions, to be vulnerable about the truth, to know that you're you're human, you know, and what that represents. But we want to sort of pretend that we're like Iron Man and like we're like these warriors and like dude warriors need to cry too like like, like it's just like all these superhero movies you know like you, you gotta you gotta sort of accept that humanity because when we put on the mask of these superheroes we do disservice to ourselves and we also do do disservice to those around us who are looking to be inspired who are looking to find ways to deal with their challenges and as you're saying like we all face different challenges there's not one life out there that doesn't have their own challenges some are a little more traumatic than others, but we're all facing challenges constantly. And it's like, how do we get through that? How do we move through that in an effective way to, as what happened with you, is growth, to have hope back in humanity and to build stronger relationships with those around us. So you know, kudos to you for having the courage to find a way through because you know, so there's millions of people out there that are constantly dealing with that. They don't have the support, but like these stories can really help people get a new look and new take on what people go through that are on the streets or that, that are addicted uh, and the traumas that are, a lot of people are unaware and, and haven't dealt with and how important it is to talk and deal with the issues that happen in your life. And so I'm really uh, curious about I mean, what are ways that you cope now? Cause we know about what you did last time <laughs> or before. <laughs> so what do you, what do you use now to cope or how do you cope now? Well, you know, I'm still a very anxious person and uh, I'm very big and I've always been a very spiritual person, but um, I'm very big with meditation and, you know, it's really easy, easier said than done, but pause, you know, and, and, uh, and that's something that I'm still trying to really grow with um, and, and, and get better at doing. I find my, I find myself catching myself a little bit more than I used to, you know, like it's so easy for me to want to like lash out or, or, you know, jump the gun. And I find myself kind of holding back at times and being like, okay, like, do I need to act on this now? But, you know, I, I try to do things in a healthier way, you know, and, and it starts with little things, right? Like working out, you know, exercise, that's important for me. If I, I notice the change in my mind, even after a couple of days of not like working out or going for a run or something like that. And, and I, and I could see the shift and I see the shift too, with like, you know, lack of meditation or, or lack of readings. You know, I try, I try, I do a lot of, I do a lot of stoic type of reading, but I, I read a lot of stories of growth memoirs, uh, especially, but a lot of philosophical types of reads too. And I notice the, the change in my being and, and, and my, my state of being and my mental state of being, especially when I don't do these things, like when I just kind of like take a step back and like, Oh, I can take a couple of days off from doing this. And it sounds like such a, a small thing to, to not do. But for someone like me, I need to constantly be finding ways to, to better myself in a healthy way. And so a lot of that goes hand in hand with, with working the steps. Um, and, and I have to keep doing that as well. You know, I have to stay on top of myself, you know, and, and, and I, I, I still go to meetings. Um, and it's important for me to do that. It's important for me to 
you know, I, I'm, I still, I still do therapy as well. You know, and it's important for me to, to talk about these things sometimes, you know, in, in a more of a close setting, but also talk about it in a, in a bigger setting too, because if I don't talk about it, then it just becomes less real. You know, when I start saying these things vocally, it adds a certain level of realism to it. And, um, and that's what's like, like when I, you know, I, I lost a friend the other day, you know, a really close friend of mine. I don't know for sure if it was, if, if it was an overdose yet, but, um, you know, it's, it's, there's a couple rumors, but you know, the bottom line is like, I, I had to talk about that with, with a couple people because, you know, it's easy for me to just bottle it in to, to grieve in my own way. Not to, not to say that I'm going to go back and, and drink or, or pick up a drug or something like that in order to grieve with it, but it's easy for me to not talk about it and talk about the effects that it's having on me. And so obviously uh, I'm an author, but writing, journaling, that's another, another way, another tool that I use in order to, um, in order to cope. And sometimes I'll, I'll look at my the stuff that I write and, and maybe to me at first doesn't make any sense at all, but then I'll like, I'll show like a couple of people and they're like, wow, that like, that like literally hits home for me. And so I have, to, I, I'm working a lot on getting better with my self-esteem and my confidence and not doubting myself as much and sort of just like trusting my gut and my heart. And so for me, that includes pretty much writing whatever comes to my mind and whatever comes out on, on paper and, and hoping that it, it, it means something to someone or solidifies in someone's mind. Because I think that a big problem that I dealt with in the past was thinking that my story or, or what I have to say won't have an effect on someone or, or impact them when in fact, it's the complete opposite. So that's, those are some of the tools that I use now. That's so great. And I love hearing that. I, you know, I share some of those coping mechanisms uh, that you have described as well. Uh, you know, sports is big for me. But I think uh, the ones that really, we, I really get are the, you know, talking with people, talking mm-hmm. with my close friends, and the ones that I have love for them, I, they have love for me, I have their best interest in mind, they have my best interest in mind. Because then it also kind of solidifies my internal strength as well. You know, when you're talking about that self-doubt, sometimes, you know, you have that. And sometimes we have that as people. And sometimes we do need to bounce things off of other people who we can trust fully and say, okay, they know how to guide me in the correct way. You know, we have different types of guides and forces and, you know, internal, external, maybe a spiritual force. But like you seem to be tapping into multiple ones, which is, I think, a, a beautiful thing to do. Um, and and super healthy, but yeah, I mean, I love uh, a lot of what you said, and, and can definitely be helpful for other people if they haven't tried some of those things. Yeah, and, and and I think it's I think it's a matter of of just trying. You know, people will like be like, oh, like you know, meditation. Like I'm not like I'm not like Buddha. Like you know, like like Gandhi. Like no, I don't. No one's like Buddha. <laughs> yeah, yeah. none of us are for sure. Exactly. You know, and it's like people are like, oh, that's so that just seems so dumb. Like, and it's like you try to just level with people a little bit and like, you know, like if you don't like it, you don't like it, but try it. You never know if you, you know, if, if you're, if you're not going to get something out of it, I think it's important just to like, sometimes like reset, you know, I find myself doing that during the day sometimes. Um, and just like taking a moment, like not looking at my phone, you know, for 10 minutes, like just trying to like, just be, you know? And like, it's so, uh, I, it's so, it's so funny. Cause like, I never used to like appreciate, the little things in life, you know, like nature or just like cool air, you know, against your face and like, you know, just like breathing in like nice fall air, right? Like little things that you just take for granted, I guess. And um, and now it's like, I find myself more aware of like 
where I am as a person, but also physically, like where, where I am, you know, and, um, and just sort of embracing that for what it's worth. That's the, what I, what I got from what you said earlier was definitely like self-monitoring, you know, being aware of where you're at because before it gets out of hand, you know, like before, you know, you're two, three, four days into this and into like maybe a negative spot or, and I'm just talking about myself, maybe a bad mindset is like, you know, penciling in things in your day for self-care and, and, you know, that awareness of it is like, okay, I know that, okay, I'm going to be podcasting this day. That's great. That always lifts me up. That always brings me to a great spot. Okay. I'm going to be playing sports. Okay. Or maybe I'm, I'm down. Maybe I need to take a bath. Maybe, maybe it is reading a, a positive book once in a while, or maybe it's talking to a friend, but it's that monitoring yourself and, and understanding where your own head's at and, and the thoughts that are kind of going through that. Uh, through the day and through through your mind and through your life, and again, like you said in the the, the last part of that is this: uh, you know, you do develop a joy once you're in that mode. I think you develop a joy and appreciation for things around you and the small things, and you wake up to some of those things. And I've I've gone through I I've had those moments, and I've also had moments where I haven't really you know taken the time to smell the roses, so to speak. Right, right. Yeah, I love how you sort of mentioned about being. Like when um, Ram Das, I would say one of my mentors, just in the sense of who he was and what he was able to teach me through his writing and lectures. Um, he wrote a book, Be Here Now. And I really like through that, I really understood the, the benefits of learning how to be, just be present in the moment. And you don't really understand we're always doing stuff, right? It's all about being productive, but it's amazing what can happen when you can find a way to be, as you said, reset. And like how your day goes and just finding those moments throughout the day to just reset to then start again. And, you know, that's why, like, you know, sleep, sleep has that benefit for a lot of people where they, you know, will take a nap or whatever. But if you can be, find a way to just be while you're awake, well, then, you know, that's a great way to then check yourself to then move forward. And, you know, it, it takes time and it takes effort to to do that. And I'm glad that you can be aware of, oh, I'm a little off today. I got to spend some time by the lake or just like just sitting with the moment and what is and who you are in that moment. So, you know, kudos to you to finding your, your way to that, because that's one approach I use a lot. Just to jump, jump on that is uh, during a time like this, you know, we are in a global pandemic and there are different types of uh, external forces that can cause strain and stress in an individual's life. And I think that's, it's even more important to be aware of those things in a time like this you know, some people, they're not used to maybe being around their spouse a lot or, you know, being in with their kids not in school and or having to teach their school. That's another stress, having to having to have their kids at school and be worried about them. But lots of different stresses and, and global stresses that are accumulating. And these are things that, you know, you have you should be aware about it and work towards and saying, I need to take care of myself and my mental state during this crazy time. Yeah. And that's the thing is like, uh, that's what I'm trying to do now is like kind of get in touch with some schools and, and talk about like my story a little bit, because I think especially in children, but also in adults too, like focusing and like kind of acknowledging our mental health during these times is is really important. I mean, I think that it's no surprise really that people are using drugs or, or alcohol and that there's, you know, been a spike in, in suicide and also the domestic abuse and stuff too. It's like all these things that, uh, you sort of downplay at times, you know, and it's been really, really enhanced with, with being in quarantine and stuff like that. So I think that, uh, you know, that's, that's where I kind of want to like shed some light with some of these like high school kids, especially and, and just in general, because 
you know, I think it's easy for people just to kind of be, try to be more self-absorbed and not really understand that other people are struggling in these times, you know, and, and that's something that's important and that needs to be addressed. That's great. And I wish you all the best as you continue to help people in different ways. They said your book is one way and hopefully you can do some talks and lectures to increase people's awareness. And you came on the podcast and you've touched my life and opened my eyes and my heart today on, on what people actually do go through and how beautiful it is to see where they are now. To hear that story and then also hear you talk about it now, it's just like my mind is just blown on, on what, what you've done. And it's so inspiring and gives me so much hope as much as I don't have that kind of suffering and, and that kind of challenge. I have smaller challenges. So I'm like, if you can do that, I can do this. You know, like I can move through this. And you just give people a hope saying it's possible. The one thing I do want to move to is your book. And I'm really curious because it was such a traumatic situation. And I can only imagine that you must have been triggered or you must have had um, maybe a lack of lack of um, understanding of what would happen if you decided to write this into a book. Like, it, would you relapse? Would you not? Like, could you go through maybe some of your thoughts on writing the book and maybe like what, if anything, sparked in you? Yeah, I mean, there was um, a lot of therapeutic relief and release that I got from from the writing process in general. You know, like I started journaling when I was 10 years old and um, I maintained that for pretty much until like my like late teens. And then I kind of strayed away from it. And I guess it was so easy for me to say, you're not a writer. Like, why are you going to try to be a writer? You know, so I, you know, I downplayed it and I like came up with every excuse possible to not write it. And so where I stand now with it was like, all right, so I started writing about the abuse in the book, obviously. And when I, when I started doing it, it was very easy for me to pretty much keep it surface level. And what I mean by that is I didn't go as detailed as maybe I could have. And uh, as time went on, things weren't happening with like an agent or, or the publishing process. So not to say that it was like correlated, but there was just a part of me that was like, I think I need to go a little bit deeper with this, a little bit more vulnerable. And and I did. And I put everything, everything on, on, on paper. And that was really hard for me to do. You know, it was, it's so easy to, to kind of succumb and, and feed into that. Like, what are people going to think? And are they going to judge me? And like, are they going to look at me the same? And, you know, and, and things like that. Whereas like, I, I became a little bit more focused on like, well, is this going to make me change? Is this going to make me feel better? And it did. It, it really did to, to get it out there and acknowledge it for what it was worth, but also to acknowledge the fact that I'm not going to be ashamed of this anymore. And I've seen my change with it. You know, like there was so much guilt and shame that kind of carried with me in the years to come. And then, it, and then it was like, sort of like really present when I came forward about it, because then it's like, now everyone knows. And then like, people are going to like, be like, well, why didn't you do this? Or why didn't you do that? And, and, and prevent it or whatever. And so just saying it and like writing it down, it already, I already freed myself of it. And I, and I didn't let it have the control and the grip that it used to have on me. And the fact that I used to let it, you know, affect me in such a negative way. And then it would feed into other parts of my life and other aspects of my life. So then getting everything else out on, on paper too, you know, I didn't want my story to be a drug story, particularly. I didn't want it to be a 9-11 story either. I wanted to really encompass everything that I went through and, and to really know that there's resilience to be found in the story and there's inspiration and, and there's hope. More importantly, there's hope, you know, that you can get through all these things in life that you go through, you know, that seem, you know, insurmountable. You can do it. And so like the irony is I 
got laid off from my fi- one of my I was working in finance still in sobriety and got laid off in uh, about a year ago, over a year ago, and uh, and so I still hadn't had the book published. It wasn't I didn't have a deal yet, anything like that. And I said to myself, I'm going to give this one last shot into the new year. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. But at least I can say I was persistent and that I tried. And lo and behold, you know, I, I got my book deal about a month into the new year. And I was like kind of hesitant. I was like, you know, do we want to get the book out, like publish it for the 20th year anniversary do, or do we want to get it out now? And they wanted it to get out that September. So we did. And it was it was a lot of work from, you know, from that time. COVID paused some things and, you know, delayed certain things as well. But, uh, you know, we were able to get it done and do the little back end stuff that we had to do in order to get it published for September. And then, you know, now it's like in the in about four years ago, and I started speaking at schools and telling my story. And that was something I always wanted to do. And then people started saying to me, you should write a book. So I was like, all right, like I can write a book. And it was hard for, for someone with like ADD and like a lot of self-doubt as well. Like, you know, I, I went around in a lot of circles and getting it done, but I did get it done. And so now that it's out, people have started approaching me and saying, "Are you? when's the next one coming out? And like, that's like where the, the funny thing is, like before they even started saying that stuff, I started writing, like started continuing to do daily writing as I've been doing like, in the last couple of years. And that's like where I'm starting to see my purpose. You know, I'm starting to see my purpose in hopefully the things that I write or the messages that I'm trying to portray are getting through to people. And I can sort of, you know, couple that with, um, with speaking as well. And, um, you know, I think that I truly found my passion in life, which is, um, it, it took me a while to get here, but I'm here. That's beautiful. It's so inspiring. Woo. Look at you go. <laughs> and, and it's great to hear. And I'm said so like, it's what a, what an interesting podcast, the amount of emotions I've just faced just by hearing you. So th- there's a lot of power in your words and in your story for others to, to gain encouragement as they move forward through their struggles. And it said, like, as Sean was saying, like, COVID-19 is a struggle for many reasons. And this is a timely book to give encouragement on what's possible when you actually look at the situation that you're trying to deal with and give it the time and day to talk about. And so the book is Sway. And so where can people find the book? Well, you could find it in, you know, your your popular bookstores, Barnes & Noble, Indigo. Um, It's on Amazon. That's where people are resorting to i think a lot uh kindle apple books uh and it's also on audiobook on audible oh no way was is it you talking unfortunately it's not me talking no. uh, <laughs> we, couldn't, we couldn't work that out in the deal but uh you know the guy i think the, i think the guy who, who did it did it, who narrated it did a good job and uh you know i was i i liked his voice and i thought he he did a better job maybe than i would have with some of the emotional scenes that may have been hard for me to talk about or not talk about, but read it. You know, it's different when you talk about it versus like reading it out loud and making sure that it's done in like a, almost like a theatrical type of way, but I'm happy with it. Hey, as long as you're happy, that's great. I'm uh, so our last question on the podcast is if you could have a dream tonight of uh, your father, what would that dream look like to you? Wow. That's a, that's a great question. I would like a dream, you know, that's uh, maybe like a, I don't want to say a happy ending, but sort of just like a, a dream of of a happy moment of spending a happy moment with my dad and just feeling his presence there, you know, and 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 just you know, it's 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 easy to to forget certain things, you know. I have a voice recording of his uh, voicemail. If I didn't have that, and oh, if we didn't have the, the 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 family videos and stuff too, but you know, if I didn't have that voice recording, I probably would have forgotten his voice by now. And 
you know, I would just, uh, I would like a dream that just, you know, maybe us driving in his car, you know, and, um, and just being there together. That's beautiful. I just have, um, I mean, just to follow up with that, is there the setting would be you just driving a car, but actually the question in my head was, do you have like a favorite memory of, uh, you and him or you, him and the family when he was alive? Yeah. I mean, well, so my dad was a big sports car enthusiast. So, um, Mm -hmm. You know, my dad, he, he came from very poor background. You know, my, my grandparents <clears throat> were right off the boat, Italian immigrants, and, and they provided a life, though, that was, that was more than they, they could have imagined. But he wanted so much in life, and, and he was told that he wouldn't get it, and he got it. You know, he proved people wrong. So when I talk about his car, you know, he had a Porsche. At one point, he had a Ferrari, but he sold it, and uh, he, loved, he loved his Porsche. And like, so like, we used to drive around all the time in that. And so... That's like, those are some fond memories that I have, but also like being together as a family and going to the beach. And, and we used to always go to the, we, we would go to the same ice cream spot after, after the beach. And, uh, you know, so those are, those are some really fond memories that I have and, and things that we we've kept alive in, in the, in the years after. Oh, that's nice. So beautiful. And so the moment you want to remember, so you, you're going to be a child in that moment then, and it's just going to be a replay of something you've been through that maybe you have forgot. Well, I, I kind of would like a dream where it's like, present you know like him alive now and, and me where i am today you know and and, and what what it would be like I, i've I've often wondered what life would be like if he never died and not to say that some of the things that i went through which i probably could could presume wouldn't happen wouldn't have happened but um you know just to just to wonder what it would be like to have a conversation with him and, and get his take on certain things and and just things that i missed out on you know and, and conversations i've missed out on you know and I think it's so easy for us to take for granted relationships especially relationships with our parents and uh i have i have to hold on to that you know that what if you know and and, and wonder what what life would be like if he was here and i i think i can say for certain that he would be proud of me and proud that i found my real passion you know because he was trying to find his own you know and, and i think his story serves as a lesson for me to not like just try to chase money or, or try to not that he was doing that but not to try to chase like some sort of like, you know, materialistic happiness. Right. And, and just to know that when you find your true passion in life, like, you know, like they always say, it's so, it always sounded so cliche to me. Like, Oh, when you like, when you love what you do, it's not really a job or whatever that quote is. And like, and like, now it's like, that, that is the truth. Like that I, I do, you know, like I'm not sitting here raking in like, you know, trillions of dollars, but, uh, and I could say yet, you know, I, 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 st- I still envision myself to be successful, but, you know, I'm happy. I'm the happiest I've been in a long time. And I know that I'm where I need to be today. And I think my dad would, would, would certainly agree with me and, and say the same thing. Yeah, who, who couldn't be prou- so proud of you in, in this moment on overcoming so many obstacles that were forced upon you? And to get through those and to see what you're doing now with that knowledge and with that understanding it's it's a beautiful feeling and i always get inspired by those people who do it hopefully that inspires more people to do it as you said and share i'm curious with this dream i just go back to that so you i was i was actually it's funny when i asked that question i was like you know have a a dream in mind like in my own mind like based on the conversation so i was surprised you didn't go with you two would both be flies (laughs) (laughs) hanging out somewhere with that view of what a fly would see (laughs) That would be pretty cool. What I I guess we could be flying around in a in a really really expensive sports car that he never had the chance to drive. <laughs> that would be like 
That would be like the, the ultimate, the ultimate. Yeah, dream right I mean there. the fly fly scenario sounds great, but I also <laughs> like the uh, sports car driving. Uh, where would you drive? I'm picturing California. I think those roads. California are... would be cool. Except, I mean, I, I always hear of those horrible LA traffic, but like yeah. I would like to, yeah, drive somewhere where, like, on it on the highway, but also have like a view of like the water and stuff like that, you know? Mm. Um, yeah. Just like the peacefulness. Yeah, nice fall time. I don't. You're you're in New yeah. York. State, so no, New Jersey is its own state. I'm sorry, I'm not. I'm not yeah. No, it's you know, <laughs> hand in hand. All right, but uh, yeah, nice. I'm sure there's some nice fall scenery around there. That'd be that'd be gorgeous. Yeah. So I so I really hope you get that dream. So if you do, please let us know. It'd be so happy to me to hear about that from you, especially with everything you've gone through. Yeah, I will for sure. I, I've always like you know after I saw the movie Inception, I was like, I really wish I could just you know. <laughs> happen to my dreams in like a certain way so i definitely if that happens i'll let you know for sure all right matthew this has been a beautiful conversation uh we both really enjoyed it and uh you know i think we've uh again we, you know we learned some aspects about people and and um i love doing this podcast because you you see their strength you see the challenges they've overcome and you see them as real humans who are who are on this earth uh and and who have who have purposes you know and you have a beautiful purpose in terms of the conversations you can have with adults and children alike and, and hopefully help them through some of the painful moments in their life um so yeah uh, everybody can please check out our platform at griefdreams.ca for more information on the topic uh, if you if you would like to contribute to the podcast there are links uh, on our website where you can do that if you have Facebook, you can join the Grief Dreams group. You can share your dreams or hear more dreams of others. We are on Twitter and Instagram at Grief Dreams. And as always, we love to end the podcast with love and gratitude from us to you. Just myself, you have introduced yourself. This is a very good conversation.